This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. If it is imputed to you, it is now yours. And that's this whole idea that Paul is trying to hammer home here, is that righteousness was given by God to those who believe. Through the simple act of faith, we receive the credit of righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As Pastor David continues through the book of Romans, he will be explaining to us in depth what the phrase imputed as righteous means. Imputed is defined as a legal and accounting term that means to credit to a person's account. We all have a spiritual account of zero before we were saved. Once we receive Christ, His righteousness is imputed into our spiritual account. The Father looks at our account and all he sees is Christ's righteousness imputed into it. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans chapter 4 verse 1 for part 1 of our message entitled, Imputed as Righteous. You ought to be in chapter 4. That's where we're going to begin today. And as we've been talking about Romans, we've been talking about the fact that it is a gold mine of Christian doctrine. And we've talked about the richness of that gold mine and how within that gold mine there's going to be a multitude of nuggets that you are welcome to pick up. It becomes yours. And the more you share that nugget, I believe the, the greater the nugget grows for you. It's one of those great realities of the Christian faith. The more you share your faith and give your faith away, the more your faith increases. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at one of those major nuggets. As a matter of fact, I believe that it's one of those main veins that we're going to be looking at. When you start thinking about gold nuggets, the largest gold nugget that was ever found was 195 pounds. Now, that is a little bit lighter than I am, but you think 195 pounds of gold. The interesting thing was it was found during the gold rush over in California, and they've not discovered a bigger one since then. So from 1854 until just here recently, that is the biggest gold nugget that was ever found, and it was found right in the midst of where all the gold rush was going on over in California. At the time, that gold nugget was worth $43,534. Now, that was 150, 150 something years ago. Now, for those of you that are math challenged like I am, I had to get my calculator out and I figured, okay, 195 times the price of gold today. And I uh, know because the price of gold today is in ounces. So I have to take 195 times 16. That came out to 3,120 ounces. A conservative estimate on the price of gold today is around $1,000 to $1,100 per ounce. That gold nugget right now would be worth in the neighborhood of $3.5 million, 3.435, somewhere in that area, depending upon what the price is. A very valuable gold nugget, and it increases in value continually. And it's just like the Word of God in your life. The more precious it is, and the more you invest in it, the greater value it becomes in your life. 
We look at the riches of the word that we're reading, that we're discovering, that we're studying. We think, Lord, you are enriching my soul. You are enriching the very being of my faith in every aspect of my life. Help me not to waste it. Let me ask you this. If you had a gold nugget, one-tenth the size of that one, say it was only 19 and a half pounds, do you think that you would cherish that? Do you think that you would guard and watch over that? How about your spiritual life that is of much greater value than gold or silver or any other precious gem? How much do you value your spiritual life? How much do you guard your life? I guarantee you that the enemy seeks to destroy it. And you are the one who needs to guard it. Lay it before the Lord to continually come before him. Not allowing the things of the world to continually enter to fill your life. Our outline in the book of Romans continues to grow. I've spoken to you a lot about the fact that Paul, as he lays out the book of Romans, as many of the writings of Paul, is kind of like a, he is a, 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 a chief prosecutor. He's laying the case out. And this morning, he brings Abraham to court. And we start speaking about the righteousness of Abraham. So by now, you ought to be in the book of Romans. By now, you ought to be in chapter 4. And would you follow along with me as I read the first eight verses? Paul writing here, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when he says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him, for him who works, the wages aren't counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, and he quotes David in Psalm 32, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It's interesting, the ancient rabbis of Paul's day looked at the works and the righteousness of Abraham as being that that would cover and carry them. They didn't look at his righteousness being that that was based on faith. They looked back and saw all the righteous works of Abraham. And they said that because of his works, Abraham was justified or made righteous. And therefore, because we're children of Abraham, now we're righteous too. Just simply because we're born under, again, that the bloodline of Abraham because they were Jews. It's not too unlike many Americans today believe that, well, because I'm an American, uh, you know, uh, God's pleased with me. I'm part of, I am a, a, a Christian because I am an American. Well, that's changing quite dramatically as the generations go, but that mindset was very popular uh, at least a generation ago. It's not where you were born or who you were born under. 
So the reality is, is are you born again? And that's, that's, the, that's the issue. For the Jews, the works became very much the factor of Abraham's life. And so Paul is bringing to them this case that says, no, it's the faith of Abraham. It was not his works. It was Abraham's faith. And he brings into call not only Abraham as his witness, but the scriptures that the Jews believed. And where Genesis says, no, that it was his faith because of his faith, because he believed it was accounted unto him as righteous. But then he also speaks about the fact of he brings another witness in, and that would be David, as he brings about again what David's psalm in Psalm 32 declares. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. He makes it very clear, not only there, but also in verse 3. When he says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that the righteousness was imputed to him because of faith. You might look and think, well, that word imputed, it's an interesting word. As a matter of fact, uh, your version may use the word imputed. It may use a few other words. Merriam-Webster's definition of the word imputed has both kind of a negative context as well as a positive context. In the negative context, it's to lay responsibility or blame for someone. And we actually see that in, in David's writing when he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin or blame the sin on them. But it also has a positive aspect to it also to credit to a person or a cause to give credit not necessarily because they deserve it but simply to give that credit and that's what we're looking at this morning this imputed righteousness that comes to those who are believers in Jesus Christ again in thinking about that word imputed it comes from a Greek word Logizomai, and logizomai is mentioned no less than 11 times just in chapter 11. So I don't know about you, but when I see a word that's mentioned that many times in such a short, small area, it gets my attention. Lord, what are you trying to say there? That's a powerful word. The, the inference of it is powerful, and you're using it over and over and over and over again. Well, in our versions, it's translated variously. It might be impute, it might be count, it might be account, it might be to credit, and it might be to reckon. And that word reckon is kind of a funny word. Uh, I grew up in the South, and uh, uh, when we said uh, I reckon, well, reckon is kind of like maybe so, maybe not. Well, I reckon we ought to get up and have breakfast this morning, or uh, I reckon we ought to go on into town, or I reckon, you know, reckon is there's no real solidness in that word in that meaning but that's not really the meaning of the word the word itself has both legal and accounting terminology when something is reckoned we use the word reconcile our checkbooks for those of 
us that do reconcile our checkbooks. We reconcile the accounts, that legal and accounting term. Also the whole idea of this credit, this accounting to him. And again, I don't want to continually pound on this, but I want you to grasp hold of what this word means. In the King James Version, it's translated variously as counted, reckoned, counted, imputed, those different ways. In the New King James Version, you see a little bit difference. Again, uh, accounted and accounted and imputes, uh, those words. It's interesting, though, when you get to the NIV, and you know we often pick on the NIV, they're not very, um, they don't reach out there too far. They use credited pretty much through the whole thing. But that's the idea. If I had that gold nugget worth three and a half million dollars today, and I credited it to your account, suddenly it becomes yours. If it is imputed to you, it is now yours. And that's this whole idea that Paul is trying to hammer home here, is that righteousness was given by God to those who believe. Through the simple act of faith, we receive the credit of righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, we get back to the scripture and we look at verses 9 through 12. And Paul continues on with the argument or stating the case. He talks in verse 9, does this blessedness, and what blessedness is this he's speaking of? Well, he's referring to, again, what David said, the blessedness of not having my sin imputed to me, but having righteousness imputed to me. He says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Well, one thing I want you to understand, when he's speaking of circumcised, he's speaking of of the Jews. So is this only given to the Jews because of again of the work of Abraham? He says in verse 10, how then was it accounted while he while Abraham was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, he answers his question, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. In other words, that work of the flesh. In order that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they were uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed or credited or accounted to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. It's interesting. This whole work and declaration of Abraham for his righteousness found in Genesis 15 took place nearly 13 or 14 years prior to his point of being circumcised, carrying out in the flesh that work of the flesh that God commanded. And the Jews were so adamant that, hey, if I'm, if I'm Jewish, I'm circumcised, man, I'm under the household of faith. 
But now Paul brings out this reality that Abraham is actually father of both. Not only for the Jews that were circumcised, but even for the Gentiles, for the uncircumcised ones. Well, how can he be father of the Gentiles, of the uncircumcised ones? Because he is father to those who by faith have come to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's only as they come by faith. Beloved, in a little while, he continues to speak about the fact that even those who were, again, were claim Abraham as their father, that he may be their father in the flesh, but in the spirit, he's not their father if they don't come to faith in Christ. They may claim Abraham as their father, but Paul brings a very strong argument about, no, he's not your father. Somebody else made that same argument, if you remember, in the Gospels, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. And they claimed Abraham as their father. And Jesus, very seeker-sensitive and politically correct, spoke to them and says, No, Abraham isn't your father. Satan is your father. He just told them straight out, No, God is not your father. Satan is your father. Because they had rejected the truth of God, and they were working for their own desires, and they had no real desire to learn and to grow in God. Faith to those, or he's the father to those who by faith believe. Well, let's get back in verses 13 through 22. He goes on to say, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law or through the flesh, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. He's asking, are you trusting in the flesh or in faith? Because if you're made righteous by a work of the flesh, then faith is not necessary. You just go ahead and and do all the work of the flesh that you need. And faith isn't really necessary. And yet he says that will never do because, again, he continues to bring the argument on later. The fact that we could never do enough good works. We could never gain righteousness by our own good works. You and I all combined could not do enough good works to be able to match the holiness and the righteousness of Almighty God. He goes on in verse 15, because the law brings about the wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. What is he saying? It is, is that promise. He says, therefore, that promise is of faith that it might be according to grace. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, of the flesh, as children of Abraham, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it's written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they do. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. So that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. He looks back there in verse 17. He says that, man, he believed him who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You look at Sarah and the situation of Sarah at that point in time. She was well beyond childbearing years. She was now in her 90s. Abraham himself, now 100 years old, well beyond childbearing years. And yet, because God says, you will have a son a son of your own through Sarah, your wife. Though Abraham tried to do it on his own, he tried to do it in the flesh, and God did not receive his work of the flesh, did he? That's Ishmael, and God says, I'll I'll go ahead and bless Ishmael, but that's not the son of blessing. The son of blessing is the one that I'm going to do through you and Sarah. And as Abraham believed that God would take that that was dead, the the reproductive system of Sarah and, and the ability for them to be able to have children, he believed God for the impossible. He believed God for the miraculous. He believed God for the supernatural. And God says, you're willing to believe I will accomplish that. Therein lies that declaration of righteousness for him. And that's why he says, man, that's why it was accounted to him as righteous. And it says in verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised He was also able to perform. Now I want you to think about that able to perform for a moment. Because in your life, the work of God, the move of God in your life, I believe is completely contingent upon the level of your faith. If you believe God is being small and he's only working and moving in my life only in this area, Beloved, the work and the move of God isn't going to be happening in your life. The greater understanding we have of who God is and the power and the might of God, the more open the channel is for God to work and move in our lives. Because Abraham did not waver. Because Abraham believed that it was God who was able to do even the impossible, the miraculous, the supernatural in his life. Do you believe that God is able really and truly today to do the miraculous, to do the impossible, to do the supernatural in your life? He either is or isn't. And if you don't believe that he is in your life, if you believe that, man, I'm just pretty well stuck to whatever I'm able to do, then you're not going to see the might and the power and the glory of God in your life. That doesn't mean he's not doing it. It means that your eyes are going to be blinded to it. It doesn't mean that he won't do it in your neighbor or even in a family member. But it does mean that you're not going to really see it and experience it for the fullness How great is our God? How great, how mighty, how awesome? Or do we limit Him 
to our understanding. Beloved, if you have a manageable deity, then you don't have my God. You don't have the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You don't have the God of David. You don't have the God of Old Testament or New Testament. If you've got a manageable deity that moves only at your bidding and only within the framework of what you understand and what you can wrap your head around, you don't have the God of what the Word speaks about. Because our God is a mighty and an awesome God, able to do miraculous, supernatural, those things well beyond our understanding. And when our faith comes to that point, that we're able to literally lay our lives down before Him in every situation, you don't think that that blesses God? You don't think that God will respond to that kind of faith? I know that He will. I know it by experience. I know it by the testimony of multiples. I know it by according to His Word. I know that God is more than able and more than willing to move in the lives of those who walk lives of faith. Absolute faith. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We have services on Saturday evenings and two Sunday morning worship services, as well as other services throughout the week. For more information about service times, including driving directions, log on to TheOpenWord.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now, we want to be sure to tell you how you can get a free copy of this teaching. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. Our website has today's message available for you to download. For more information about The Open Word or Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, again, we encourage you to log on to TheOpenWord.com. Although The Open Word teachings are always available to you free of charge, if you'd like to help support this ministry, simply log on to our homepage at TheOpenWord.com and click on the support link to make a secure donation to this teaching ministry. Your donation can be set up as a one-time or regularly scheduled tax-deductible gift to this ministry. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in, and may God richly bless you.